If you want to turn your Bible to Revelation 3, 14, we'll be there through verse 22 today. Revelation 3, 14 through 22 um, is the, the letter that I've chosen to look at um, in conjunction. I'm just realizing that if you've been at Blackman for the last three years, you are almost done going through the entire Bible chronologically. We're almost there. It's really incredible. We'll finish in a couple of weeks. So that's, that's really great. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 22, the letter to that name of that town that you've probably never heard of somewhere in Turkey, Laodicea is how you pronounce it. When I was in, um, in seminary, I had a, a friend named Adam Robinson. Adam is a pastor now in the Birmingham area. And Adam, at the age of 22 or whatever, was also really a hot commodity on the preaching market for student camps. And, and so he toured the southeast going from retreat to retreat to retreat to camp to camp to camp all summer. And, um, but he was also a friend and, a, and, a cohort, and an acquaintance you know, in, our, in my seminary studies. And so in a, in a preaching class... Um, that I had with him, which wasn't intimidating at all. Um, he, <laughs> Mississippi, rural Mississippi, and where he had gone, it was a Friday night and a Saturday night, kind of a disciple now weekend retreat. And so dozens of churches and all the surrounding small community areas had come together to form this one retreat. So there were hundreds of students there. And then for the worship event on Friday and, and on Saturday, and, uh, and then they would all break out into houses all over the county and surrounding counties um, in South Mississippi. Um, and that way they could pull their resources, have a really big experience, and afford somebody like Adam to come and preach for them. And so Adam um, t- told the story about going on Friday night and doing the live event Friday night. And because there is no hotel in random rural Mississippi, Adam ended up sp- spending the night in the home of a widow in Mississippi. So imagine you know, preaching at this one local county seat church and driving 20 miles out into the boonies and, uh, and where and, you know, about you know, 11 o'clock midnight where he's going to be dropped off at the home of a 70-year-old widow by himself. Kind of weird, right? And out into the, into this, out into the country. And so she, she welcomes him and they get all, they takes him and gets this, you know, this is where the house is, this is where the kitchen, will make coffee, blah, blah, blah. Your, your room is up the stairs. It's my craft room. It's upstairs, top the right. Have a good night. Have a good night. She goes off to bed. He goes up the stairs. Goes upstairs, turns to the right, and walks into the craft room. And in a craft room it is. It is uh, about a 10 by 10 room. So it's not a huge room. It's more like a hobby room. But, there is, but there's a, a bed set up. And every wall is covered with shelves from floor to ceiling. And every one of the shelves is covered in dolls. Dolls that you make, dolls that you buy, dolls that you collect, all of them dolls. And so when he turns out the lights to go to bed and he opens his eyes, all he sees is dolls, you know, just staring at him. And so you've got that going on and he's got this storm that's blowing outside and he's got, you know, uh, tree limbs in the winter disciple now scratching the window and he's 20 miles from anywhere and in his heart and in his head the fear and the anxiety and then he's got these dolls just staring at him and then it just kind of works up in his mind and he's starting to get uncomfortable and then out of nowhere there is this loud animal-like scream like a banshee ah! and he shoots up out of bed this is a 20 you know, year old man terrified of something because of the dolls and the thing and over and over and over again. And he was sure that he was in danger, but he wasn't. It was just a widow's... 
Just because we think or feel like something is true doesn't make it true, right? We are prone to self-deception, and we go through life believing far too often that one thing is true when reality something else is true. And the reasons for this are many. You know, sometimes we mistake our gauges in our life as a guide for our life, and we make decisions like that, and it's just not true. Sometimes we read our gauges, but we misread them, and we guide ourselves in the wrong direction, thinking one thing is true, but something else is entirely true. Sometimes we seek information that supports what we already want to believe, and then we avoid information that does not lead us to believe what we want to believe, And we believe some things are true, but they're really just not true. We are prone to self-deception. And this is true spiritually as well. Okay? So all throughout the Bible, there are various warnings about self-deception of our true spiritual state. All kinds of warnings. Matthew 7, 13 through 23 is perhaps the most well-known. Jesus is asking the question, are you going through a narrow gate or are you going through the wide one? Are you aware? What do you wolf in? Are you a sheep? Or are you a sheep? Or you are, are you a wolf in sheep's clothing? Are you one who knows Jesus? Or thinks he knows Jesus? Or are you one whom Jesus knows? Right? So these, these are the kinds of things that Jesus asks in that passage because he wants us to be aware of our propensity to self-deceive. And this letter in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, is along those exact same lines. So let's stand together and read the passage, and we'll, uh, we'll work our way through this idea of self-deception. Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to show you um, three kind of categories in this text to kind of get at this idea of spiritual self-deception. 
And the, the first is this. I want to show you something about the nature of God because that's what, the, that's what the text does. I want to show you something about the nature of us as followers of Jesus or as a church as a whole. And then I want to show you what we're supposed to do in light of those, in light of those two truths. So first, focus with me on verse 14. And let's learn something about the nature of God. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the originator of God's creation. Okay? So without going into a whole long thing about the word stories, here's what Jesus is, re- is revealing about himself here and what the implications are for you and for, and for me. So there are three references, amen, faithful true witness, originator of God's creation. And what these things are telling us about God is this. God is the only true truth teller. God is the only true truth teller. Any testimony that he brings, like he's going to in this letter in just a moment, is a truthful testimony. And that's because God alone is in the position to know all of the truth and speak it the right way. He's the only one. He's the only true truth teller. He is the only one in the right position to know what is going on and to speak truth into what is going on and to speak truth about what is going on. And that is what Jesus wants the church in Laodicea and us to understand about him before we read the rest of this letter, before we read the truth that he's about to speak. God is the only true truth teller. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're in a conversation with somebody and you're talking about something just normal life like the NFL football statistics and how bad the Cowboys are going to be yet again, or the music that you're listening to on the radio and you can't quite remember who it is that's singing this song or the album that it was on or the year that it was published or something like that. And you're having that conversation. You go, oh, no, who was the girl in the movie? She, she was, but then, you know, she was the one who, she was also in this movie. Go, who, who was that? And you, instead of, you know, thinking about it, what do we do? Hey, Siri, who starred in the movie Black Widow? She's saying, one second, still on it. She doesn't know. That's what we do, right? Or you say, Alexa, and your speaker lights up, and you say, what's this thing? And she tells you how to cook your shrimp. Or uh, you you ask, you Google, you put your phone home, you Google it really quick, right? That's what we we do. When we want to know something really quickly, like a bit of trivia, we ask an artificial intelligent engine, a search engine, And we often get a very accurate and truthful answer when she decides to work. But because I have AT&T, it does not work in this area. But other times, when we want to know something more complex, and you search for it on Google, you'll get relevant information, but you don't get an accurate, truthful answer. Like when I was uh, experiencing all kind of tremors and twitches in my arms and my muscles uh, a few months after my mother had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and I enter all my symptoms in Google basically inferred that I also was going to have Lou Gehrig's disease at the age of 37 but it wasn't true because Google was only capable of giving me information it knew enough to be dangerous 
but it didn't know enough to be truthful. See, there are always going to be gaps in Google. Always going to be gaps with Siri. Always going to be gaps in the Internet. There have been and there always will be in Google's knowledge by definition. So in light of that illustration, isn't it absolutely stunning what Jesus says about himself here? I am the amen. I am the so be it. I am the faithful and the true witness. I am the originator of God's creation. Isn't it stunning that God knows absolutely everything? Everything. His grasp on what is has no beginning. It has no end. He is never confused. He never has to live with misunderstanding. There is nothing that ever surprises him or perplexes him. He never has trouble reconciling one truth with another. He never has to fill in the gaps of his knowledge. He doesn't ever have to try and piece two and two together. And that's true about you. That's true about me. God knows me way better than I know me. He knows you way better than he knows you. He knows everything. There are no gaps in his knowledge. We don't perplex him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And the path, therefore the path, the path to true self-awareness is not introspection, but revelation. It's not I need to get into myself and get to know myself. It's I need to get to know God because he knows all the gaps about me that I don't know. To have God awareness is to have God dependency. To have a lack of self-awareness is to have, is to have self-sufficiency, and that's not biblical. Self-sufficiency is it biblical. God dependency is what we're biblical. So we have these references to God. He's the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the originator of God's creation. And that tells us something about him. He is the only true truth teller. This is his world. He created it. And he will tell us whether or not we are living rightly in it. We are self-deceived. So what does he, this truth teller, say to the church at Laodicea? Well, the answer is in verse 15 through 20. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot and so on. So before we go on to explore this part of the letter... If you've got a pen, I want you to write down this little pithy statement about Bible interpretation that will serve you for the rest of your life incredibly well. And here's the sentence. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And what I mean by that is that the interpretation of the Bible... Here, here's another... Let me, let me put it this way. Another way to think about it is... If the interpretation of the text that you are, that if the interpretation of the text you're reading, if your interpretation of it could not be true for the original audience of what you're reading, then you're interpreting it wrong. Now, there may be an exception to that, like a prophecy or something like that. But by and large, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And we need this principle because when you're reading the Bible, we tend to bring with us all kinds, consciously or unconsciously, we, we bring with us biases and assumptions to the Bible, and we often misinterpret it and misapply it as, as a result of that. And this text is a classic example of it happening. All, it happens all the time. So 
in our culture, we use concepts of hot and cold metaphorically. We use those words as opposites, right? So if you're watching a golf tournament and this guy's hitting birdie after birdie after birdie, or you're watching a basketball tournament and it's just three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer, you'll say that that person's on fire, right? This guy's hot. Give him the ball. He's hot. If that same basketball player is throwing up air ball after brick, you're like, don't give him the ball because he is cold, right? So that's the case in our culture. When you read verses 15 through 16 and you hear say, the Lord say to the Laodiceans to be either cold or hot, you might be tempted to interpret cold as no good and hot as on fire for God. And if you do that, then you might also conclude that lukewarmness, which is not really hot and not really cold, would, would refer to some sort of half-hearted spirituality. It's like a walk with Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord or something like that. And lukewarm is apparently so disgusting to Jesus that he'd prefer that we just not even pretend to be followers of him. So either be hot, be on fire for God, or be cold. Don't even pretend to associate with me, but don't make me puke, Rob, by being something in between. That's what you might bring to this text because of the way our culture deals with hot and cold. And you might even get to verse 17 and say, yeah, that is the right interpretation because in the text, Jesus seems to be doing this contrast of language, right? With wealth and poverty, sight and blindness, clothing, nakedness, etc. So he's contrasting, right? But is that the way the Laodiceans would have heard it? And if not, what's the interpretation? The answer is the Bible can never mean what it never meant. Hot and cold and lukewarmness and clothing and nakedness and blindness and money all meant something completely different to the Laodiceans. And therefore, we have to interpret it the way they would, right? So it would make it sense for us. It can never mean for us what it never meant for them, right? So with a good, Bible, good study Bible, the CSB, a good Bible dictionary, the CSB Bible dictionary, come in super handy, and you'd figure this out really quick. The Laodiceans would not have heard it this way. Look at very closely at verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy. And I need nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy gold from me, refined in the fire that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed. Your shameful nakedness not be exposed. May not, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> an ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may not see. So what, what is going on here? What do the Laodiceans hear? Look at verse 16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, says Jesus, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Um, there are a lot of reasons to live in Laodicea, and I'll come to those in a little bit. But if there was anything wrong with living in Laodicea, it was the water. Uh, Holly and I were just in the Dominican Republic, and our very kind uh, you know, guy that walked us to our room said, here's... Here's, here's the thing about this place. It's really beautiful. Bottled water, you know, just everywhere. He's like, you can brush your teeth with water. You're not allowed to drink the water. Nobody here drinks the water. You can brush your teeth with it. Okay. You're kind of terrifying me here. I can put it in my mouth, you know, but I can bathe with it. Yeah, you can bathe with it. Don't drink the water. Okay. I'm sure there are all kinds of bacterial reasons for that or whatever. If you went to Laodicea, you would not drink the water. It had a terrible water supply. So, the, uh, so there's just nothing good. So they, they had these stone pipes. The Romans built these stone pipes 
And I've been to Ephesus. I've been about 10, 12 years ago we went to Ephesus, but you can actually see the pipes like this. So there are these big stone pipes, and they pipe them up into the, into the mountain, out of the Lycus Valley, into some of the other smaller towns in the area that had hot springs down from these, like where you would take, go like a hot tub, natural hot springs, and they would pipe the water down from these hot springs in these huge concrete pipes. And that's what you would drink and use to cook and all those things in Laodicea. And because it was hot mineral water coming down through these stone pipes, as it would come, it would build up sediment and calcium carbonate and all these other things. And in the old, I mean, you go to, if you go there, you can see the, the pipes they've pulled up and you can see just layers and layers of all that sediment uh, that's just built up through the pipes and your water's running over that. And as a result of it coming from a hot area down the valley, it went from hot to lukewarm. And because it was filled with sediment, it tasted like, Nasty. Just nasty. Don't drink the water. So what is Jesus saying here? The point is not that they're spiritually lukewarm. It's that they're spiritually useless. They're not hot useful like a hot spring. They are not cold like nearby Colossae, which has fresh mountain spring water up in the mountain. They're just like their own water. They're revolting. They're disgusting. If you're cold, God says, you can benefit me. If you're hot, you can be a healing agent. If you're cold, you can be a refreshing agent. But you're lukewarm. You're of no benefit whatsoever because you can't help me on either end of the water spectrum. He's looking at this busy, active church And he says, I know your deeds, I know your works. And he's saying it's non-beneficial. You've got programs, you've got activities, but what you don't have is impact. Nobody is benefiting from your presence. I want water that will refresh me. I your mouth. But you remind me of the water that you spit out of your mouth. So I'm going to spit you out of mine. You remind me of the water you always complain about. Verse 17 and 18. You say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and I need nothing. The water was terrible in Laodicea, but this was a super wealthy place to live. So once you left the empire going in this direction, you would, this was your last stop in the Roman Empire. You was here that you would exchange your money to go out into any other countries around uh, uh, on that side of the globe. And if likewise, if you were coming into Rome from that side of the globe, you come into Laodicea, and this is where you would change your money. So you've got transaction fees happening on both sides of that, and it made Laodicea an incredibly wealthy community. So it became as a banking center. It was Wall Street for the area, if you will. This is wealthy. And so arrogant was Laodicea about its wealth that when the emperor proposed to rebuild it when an earthquake destroyed it around A.D. 60. Laodicea refused the money from the Federal Emergency Management Fund. Rome had all this money to give them, but they had so much around, they said, we got it. We don't need your help. We will build our... This is... They actually wrote... We have the... We have little plaques that they... This is... Think about this, because it's coming to the text in Revelation 3.20 there are little plaques that they hung on the walls and on the gates. We don't need your help. 
this city was rebuilt at our own expense. They were proud of their wealth. They were filthy rich. They could handle it. They were proud. We don't need anybody's help. Thank you very much. Look at Revelation 3.20. What's Jesus doing? He's standing where? Outside the gate. And he's knocking on a door that presumably says what? We have enough money. We don't need your help. We don't need your help. It's as if the church had become so dependent on its own financial resources that it no longer needed Jesus to do Jesus' work. We got this, Jesus, but we don't need you. The text keeps going. You don't, uh, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, Laodicea was a place where there was a lot of sheep farming, and they were black sheep. They had black wool, and it produced this very heavy kind of cloth, something like denim that you and I would wear. So it wasn't super nice, but it, was, it wore very well, and everybody wanted it. So it also contributed to the wealth of their um, community. And so Jesus uses this hook about clothing, about them being a textile and uh, industry, and everybody knowing that Laodicea was famous for this denim kind of stuff. Jesus uses this as a hook to talk about the state of their spiritual life as a metaphor. The I, I thing, verse 18, you are purple, blind, and naked. I, I advise you um, later on in verse 18 to take this ointment and spread it on your eyes. The community was a, um, an, uh, it, I'm going to use a, this weird word, ophthalmic institute, right? This was a place where you would go because they were learning a lot about medicine for the eyes. They had this poultice that they had made, an ointment that they had made. That um, So if you lived in the near Middle East, you would often get eye infections because of all the sand. And it just blows and blows and blows. And there are lots of reasons to get eye infections back then because of what they didn't know about cleanliness that we do today, um, especially with all the cleanliness we're into these days, um, thanks to COVID. Um, but um, they, you would get all kinds of you know, dust and bits in your eyes, and it was nothing for you to get conjunctivitis all the time. And so they invented this kind of uh, poultice and ointment that you would put on your eye of your skin. It's like a facial for your eyes. Just suck it right out. And you were famous for it. So they developed this poultice and they became famous for it. And here Jesus again is appealing to everything that they know about themselves, that they are famous for, that they are putting their stock in. And he uses it as a hook to communicate something about the state of their spiritual life. So I want you to put all this together. Jesus, who Jesus is, and the, the condition of the church and the metaphors and the illustrations that God is using to speak to the church in Laodicea, what is he saying? He's saying this, that the church is self-deceived regarding its spiritual state. You think you are this because of your wealth. You think you are this because of your clothes. You think you are this because of the banking. You think you are this because of the... In reality, you are self-deceived. You are the opposite. You are much more like your water which you hate and complain about. All of these cultural references infer that the church is self-deceived regarding its spiritual state, and it's because they resemble their culture far more than they resemble Jesus. It's a wake-up call letter. The spiritual state that the church thinks it is in is a dream. It's a fantasy induced by cultural indulgence. And what Jesus calls them 
to in verses 18 through 20 is to be far more obsessed with him than the culture. Here's the thing, gang. Here's the thing. An obsession with Christ results in a love for culture, but not submission to culture. Our culture will always shape us, but Jesus has to be our primary culture. So this is a letter that confronts us with how delusionary our view of ourselves can be. And it's no wonder we might get a... I'm going to give you two practical takeaways, and then, as you can hear, I'm losing my voice, and we'll be done. First, I want you to know the warning signs of of spiritual self-deception. And if you go back and, I mean, you can, you can get this from the text if it's a very slow and you have to work, weave the read. But if you take all that Jesus is teaching the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, you, 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 you will find that the warning sign, the primary warning sign of spiritual self-deception is this. It's what Jesus referred to the Pharisees when he said, you are trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a two by four in your own right? You know that you are on the verge of spiritual self-deception when you are more concerned with other people's righteousness than your own. So when that starts happening, the path to becoming a member at the church of Laodicea is super easy. You're almost there. Paul Tripp in his devotion from July 17th or 18th, somewhere in there, said this. This is a devotion book that I absolutely love and absolutely hate. Because I love it. You know how that is? It's always busting my chops. When you think you have this righteousness thing licked, and then you quit being concerned about you, and you focus on your concern on the sins of others, that's when you know you're in spiritual trouble. When you're more concerned about the sin of other people than you are your own. Spiritual clear-sightedness always leads to humility and to confession, not to condemnation of other people. So just let's just be aware. Like if we, if we find ourselves being hypercritical and far more concerned in our minds and our conversations about other people's falling off and falling short and, and doing damage, and we don't have any time of self-awareness asking other people, hey, do you see anything in me that's not aligned with the truth of the gospel? Um, if, if, if we find ourselves really concerned about everybody else's righteousness problem more than we all our own, we probably are missing some things about ourselves. The last thing I want you to understand from this text is know the heart of Jesus toward we who are spiritually self-deceived. You see it in the text. Look, look. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Like this is, this, you feel the tone of love. You feel the motivation. I mean, Jesus is rebuking and he is, and he is seeking unity. He is seeking community. He is seeking intimacy. A meal in antiquity was the least sort of hospitality one would expect, even just between acquaintances. And the church doesn't have that with Jesus. You hear that? The church didn't have it with Jesus. 
And yet here's the heart of Jesus toward a church that has outright replaced him with money and pride and ability. And he says, I want to start over with you. I want to be with you. I want intimacy with you. I want to share with you in a meal and I want you to share in that movie. Can we start over? Can we break bread? Can we be one again? Can I be at the center of your heart? That is Jesus' heart toward his church. That is Jesus' heart toward you. That is Jesus' heart toward me. Let's be people who respond to Jesus' heart with an open door. And may we not be spiritually deceived. Father, that is our prayer. That we would not that we would receive this letter of the church to the church in Laodicea as the church to Blackman, that we, would, that we would take time as individuals and as a congregation to reflect on our own spiritual state, to ask you to seek us and see if there's be any wicked way in us and that we would repent and follow and enter into a time of confession and obedience, that we would trust and obey and be happy in you and not replace you with anything else that may be far more comfortable and yet get us in a lot more trouble. So, Father, we we need your help to do this. So make us humble, self-aware people who love you and respond to your tender heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.